From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, June 27th. I'm Marco Werman. An activist in Syria welcomes President Assad's admission that the country is now at war. I think it's better that he put it this way. At least people will know that he's at war against his own people. At least he's quite simple and clear about it at this stage. And later, how soccer brings out Europe's latent tribalism. We do these bizarre things like wear silly matching shirts or paint our faces in the colors of our national flag. And you can see that psychologically we're we're sort of indistinguishable from our tribe. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece, presenting Endeavor, Sunday, July 1st at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The White House today condemned all acts of violence committed in Syria, including attacks targeting pro-regime elements. That statement came after gunmen stormed a pro-government TV station near the capital, Damascus, killing three employees. The attack underscored President Bashar al-Assad's comment yesterday that Syria is now in a state of war. Amr al-Sadek is an activist with the Syrian Revolution Coordinators Union. He and his family are living in northeast Damascus. We could hear from here fire clashes almost all day long. They come and go depending on the time and what's happening. We also could hear during the day-to-day some loud and faraway bombings that seem very similar to the mortar shelling that took place in Duma a couple of days back. And it has been targeted by the regime several times recently, including by artillery shelling. A lot of refugees came out from that area to many places, including my own, even though my area is not a very quiet area, but many families came and took refuge in my neighborhood located to the northeast of the city. The fighting and the militant attacks over the last few days, it feels like a big leap. Are, are they getting more brazen? Does, does the violence feel like it's taken a quantum leap? Well, we don't see obvious uh, scenes of violence within the city. But we know when the army attacks an area, this happened in my area a couple of days back, three tanks came to my neighborhood, which is a neighborhood within Damascus. Almost 400 soldiers came in several army vehicles. They have stormed many, many houses, and they have burned a couple of houses near what we call the Freedom Square. This is the only isolated square we could run our protests safely. I could see two mortar shells in my neighborhood. One of them is still planted in the road and it didn't explode yet. People are trying to avoid it. We don't know when it will explode, but when it does, if somebody's there, it will definitely hurt or kill him. Right. Well, we just heard a baby in the background while you were speaking with me. Is is it a safe place for a child? Not really, but this is the only place I have right now to stay in. Otherwise, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be staying where I am. And Amer, uh, you know, I got to say, we've heard a lot about divisions within the Free Syrian Army. How, how organized and unified is the opposition? 
Well, let me just first say that uh, the Free Syrian Army is only part of the opposition. It's the armed part. It includes defected military personnel, soldiers and officers, and also includes civilians who decided to enlist within these battalions. Mainly these battalions, for a lot of technical reasons and some cultural reasons, have to operate individually. Some of them have really made a great ground for themselves to make joint operations. I could see this in my area. I know of seven battalions that are really working to eat next to each other in this triangle, including my neighborhood within Damascus City and the two uh, areas within the outskirts. It is very easy for them to make joint operation and be really united when they are trying to do something. Are you not worried about deeper divisions between Sunnis and Shias? Well, in Syria, Shias are the minority part of the Alawites to which the regime belongs. Actually, this division has been created by the regime since the early days of the revolution. Unfortunately, almost none of the Alawites showed up and at least said, this is a crime. Everybody we see on the ground carrying a gun against us is mostly an Alawite or a loyalist or a Shabiha, a militant who is being paid to do that. Unfortunate as this is, but it has to be said because this is the situation. Alawites are handling most of the killing in Syria. They have been abused by the regime and they have accepted that abuse, unfortunately. I'm just curious to know, Amer, can you imagine one day living next door to a family of Alawites and your children playing with Alawite children? The Syrian people are very tolerant, but nobody's going to be tolerant to anybody who killed people without any discrimination. He will be taken for accounting whether he's an Alawite or not. The fact is, most of the people doing that are now Alawite. Amir, what do you do for a living, and have you been able to continue to go to work in recent months and weeks? Well, I used to have a company, and I used to be able to win contracts of outsourcing projects from Europe, uh, UK, USA. Unfortunately, my business stopped with the first wave of sanctions against the regime. Just a minute. Okay, he's in my lap now. Okay, I think this great. Should be... Amer, did you ever think when you first joined the uprising that it would come to this, that you would have your president uh, saying that the country's at war? Well, no, we didn't think of that. It's better that he came to this truth eventually. I think it's better for us than him lying systematically about what's going on. At least people will know that he's at war against his own people. At least he's quite simple and clear about it at this stage. It's better for us this way. Amer al-Sadek, an activist with the Syrian Revolution Coordinators Union. He's on the outskirts of Damascus. Amer, thank you very much. Take care of yourself and your children. I will. Thank you. Syrian citizens aren't the only ones in the crosshairs. So apparently is Turkey's Air Force. Syria shot down a Turkish reconnaissance jet last Friday. Details are still sketchy. Turkish officials are noticeably upset. But today, Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan said that there would be no immediate retaliatory strike against Syria. Cengiz Akhtar is professor of political science at the University of Istanbul. Professor Akhtar, can you tell us what you know at this point about the details of the downing of that Turkish jet? Well, uh, it was on purpose, I'm afraid. And, of course, Syrians are rejecting this and saying that it was just an accident. And the Turks, I think the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, well, have demonstrated by A plus B that it was downed on purpose. Some Turkish officials say, though, that the Turkish jet looks a lot like an Israeli jet of a similar make and that there could have been a mistake. 
Well, we know that Israeli jets and fighter jets are violating the Syrian airspace probably 10 times a day. And we haven't heard any retaliation of the kind since years from the uh, Syrian army. There were refugees, Syrian refugees, pouring across the Syrian border into Turkey before the jet incident. How high were tensions between Syria and Turkey? The tension is very high, of course, between the two countries. I think Syrians are are pretty upset with the Turkish government. The Turkish government is hosting openly the uh, Syrian opposition. And Turkey is now against the Ba'ath regime and uh, openly asking for the departure of President Assad. So that's kind of a telling context. So why, after an incident like this one with the downing of the jet, is Turkey backing off confronting Syria? Well, first, Turkish army is no American or French or British army for foreign operations. It doesn't have this sort of experience, actually. And two, I mean, you don't go to invade a country because they have downed you know, one of your civilians' jets. So I think just the Turkish government is wisely uh, reacting to it bringing the issue up to NATO and uh, and the EU, and, of course, at the end, the UN Security Council. What is the sentiment about this whole incident on the Turkish streets, on the streets of Istanbul? Do Turks want their government to do something about Syria? Not really. You know, like everywhere in the world, I mean, foreign affairs uh, are not at all of interest to the men in the street. This being said, of course, the Turkish press, unfortunately, is overdoing things uh, and uh, calling almost uh, openly for a military retaliation, which is very, very irresponsible, of course. A military retaliation seems to be off uh, the table for just about everybody, not just Turkey. No one seems to want to get involved in Syria. Why is Syria such a no-go zone? I mean, uh, you know, he has two main backers, one Russia, two Iran. You're talking about Assad. Exactly. I mean, it's, uh, you know, Russia is openly backing. He has, uh, the Russian government has a naval base in, uh, in, in Tartus in Syria. And Iran is a staunch ally of Syria and the Syrian regime. So I think an intervention to Syria will have the dire consequences for the entire region, even the world. So I don't think the Turkish army will ever alone go into Syria. Cengiz Akhtar, professor of political science at the University of Istanbul. Thank you. Thank you. Marwa Daoudi is a professor of Middle East politics. She's Syrian and is currently a visiting scholar at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs in Princeton, New Jersey. Marwa Daoudi, no one in the international community seems to want to intervene in Syria. President Assad has called the troubles there war. So what are the options as far as you can see it? Well, I think first, the the primary goal and objective should be to be concerned about protecting the country and its population. Uh, The challenge now would be to first halt the violence and and bring about a political transition. So moving away from the military and security options to a political solution. And I guess this is what is underlining the effort of organizing a world powers meeting this coming Saturday, organized by Kofi Annan, to sort of implement his, his sixth point. As you know, his plan failed to bring a ceasefire and uh, they're trying. He's trying now to to have all of the world powers, including Russia, China, who have been reluctant to have an international intervention in Syria, to come on board and bring a meaningful solution to the conflict. But, but that seems to be a key point there. That Russia, who many say, including our last guest, is not just a key ally of Syria, it's supporting Assad. I mean, what can be done about Russia? Because it doesn't seem like they're budging. 
Well, Russia considers that it had been lured during the Libyan intervention, that it was about protecting the Libyan civilians and it was uh, transformed into regime change. And that is also explaining Russia's current position on Syria. I think it is not in Russia's interest to have civil war, full-fledged civil war happening in Syria. It's not in their regional interest. It's not in their interest in you know, defining their position in the Middle East. That will impact also on the strategic position internationally. So the Russians also are monitoring the situation. They do realize that there are clashes in Damascus. And by the way, these clashes happened a few miles away from the presidential palace. So in that sense, I guess there would be a shift in Russia's position if they can be convinced that their strategic interests would be preserved, but they have to be part of a political transition and somehow severing their links with the Assad regime in order to preserve the country and preserve the situation in Syria while having them still a major player in the game. What do you think is Assad's and Syria's thinking when, when they see Annan's peace plan and ceasefire fail and, and then the international foreign ministers gather to meet again in Geneva? Aren't they just betting that nothing's going to happen? Well, I mean, they've clearly been playing on time and they've been assured by the fact that the Russians were backing the regime and that they would be able to play on time while trying to effectively crush the opposition movements uh, militarily. However, there are pockets now which are outside of government control, such as the Idlib province and other areas. And in that sense, the fact that the elite guards also have been targeted in the heart of the capital is also showing that there's a shift in the military balance in that sense. There used to be total asymmetrical advantage uh, favoring the governmental forces, and now the rebel groups are somehow being empowered and and taking over effective strategies. The United States at this point, with with fighting raging in Syria and, and no end in sight, what constructive role can the U.S. play, especially at this meeting this Saturday? I think the U.S. have to come to an agreement directly with the Russians on the issue. This is the major, major uh, challenge. I think the Libyan operation is still on Russians' minds. And the Americans would need to convince the Russians and indirectly the Chinese as well, who have also stakes here, that they're not seeking military intervention in Syria, but they're seeking a solution to a problem which has a potential to spill over throughout the region. But I guess here it's also on the Russian side somehow signaling to the Americans that they're back in the game and that they're back as a power. And in that sense, the Americans, I think, would need to take this into consideration. Marwa Daoudi, a visiting scholar at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. This week saw the culmination of the Euro 2012 soccer tournament. The semifinals today and tomorrow will be followed by the final on Sunday. Meanwhile, Europe's political leaders are meeting tomorrow for the latest summit over the Eurozone crisis. Those two European events got us thinking about tribes. The World's Patrick Cox explains. There are almost as many theories about tribes as there are tribes themselves. Here's one from Mark Pagel, an evolutionary biologist at Britain's University of Reading. 
80,000 years ago, the world was full of little hunter-gatherer societies of 250 to 500 people. We call them bands. And those bands gave way to tribes that were just bands of bands. And tribes gave way to chiefdoms as tribes came together and cooperated. And chiefdoms gave way to nation-states. And nation-states gave way to these supranational organizations. Like the European Union. But even if we've moved beyond our tribal period, the word sticks. Nations can be tribes especially when there's a soccer tournament on. We do these bizarre things like wear silly matching shirts or paint our faces in the colors of our national flag. And you can see that psychologically we're, we're sort of indistinguishable from our tribe. Our tribe really is just a part of our family. These are fans of Ireland at Euro 2012. They didn't care that their team lost all its games. Singing as one was more important. Now, would these fans, or any others from EU nations, sing like that for Europe? Of course not, says Irish essayist Colm Tobin. And even though in countries like Spain and Ireland, where Europe has been so important in the modernisation process, has really helped people in their lives, nobody loves Europe. And when Europe says, no, we must all be Europeans, we feel Europeans, people snort and snigger and, and do worse. Europe, says Tobin, has failed to create its own tribe to make Europeans feel European. People feel a part of their family genetically. People feel part of their tribe almost genetically. But to try and impose another one on people just because it suits them or just because they should doesn't actually work for people. It's a problem for those politicians at their Euro summit this week. Mistrust among the national tribes is running high. But the differences aren't nearly so wide as when the tribes went to war in 1939. And it is possible for people who may think they're different to discover that they belong to the same tribe. Take writer A.S. Byatt. Her home in the north of England is now also home to hundreds of thousands of South Asians. Cities like Bradford are now largely Asian cities. But they speak my language. I'm a Yorkshire woman. And I go up there and the taxi driver looks very Asian and he begins to speak to me in Yorkshire. And that's my culture. I'm all right with it. That's, I think, how the cultures mix and separate. Accents are one thing. Languages, another. A vestige of our tribal beginnings, says biologist Mark Pagel. We're the only species, and we think of ourselves as the most intelligent species on the planet, but we're a species in which we can't communicate with other members of our own species. No other animal is like that. You pick a gorilla up and pluck it down anywhere else on Earth where gorillas are found, and it will know what to do, know how to speak, and so on. But we don't. And so tomorrow in Brussels, Frau Merkel will speak German and Monsieur Hollande will speak French. But they'll nonetheless try to overcome their tribal differences. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. To hear more on tribes and languages, check out the latest edition of our weekly podcast, The World in Words. Just go to theworld.org. There is one particular group of people that's feeling especially put upon these days in Harris County, Texas. Six years ago, the county decided to ban a number of party favors from local parks, among them piñatas. Officials said it was a litter issue. But when new signs appeared saying no piñatas allowed, Hispanic community leaders complained of discrimination. Now the county is reviewing the policy. James Pinkerton is covering the story for the Houston Chronicle. Well, I think a lot of people hadn't noticed it. And there were some Mexican-American activists here in town uh, who used the parks quite frequently, and they came across it, and it just became one of those issues that um, 
kind of the background have sprung forward. So nobody had noticed the signs, uh, no pinatas allowed on park grounds until recently? Yes. Wow, that's pretty extraordinary. What are Hispanic community activists saying about the ban and these signs? They're pretty universally offended by it. They use the parks a lot, and they say, uh, we like clean parks, too. And so why don't, why don't the signs say no litter? We understand that. Uh, it just makes it sound like you're targeting someone uh, for a cultural practice that we all know has moved beyond the Hispanic community almost at least in Texas. Yeah, one activist said this is uh, about the same as putting up a sign that says no Mexicans. Why did Houston officials decide to have the signs read no piñatas allowed on park grounds? Did no one think the wording would offend anyone? They were trying to, uh, when you talk to the park people, they say they were trying to target the one thing that caused them more work on weekends to clean up the parks because they say that there's an inordinate amount of confetti that comes out of the piñatas, and there are so many of them. I did call one of the constables, and they did describe it as a, as a litter issue, but they also said it's a safety issue. They said that there have been concerns about children who were breaking piñatas without parental supervision. So I don't know if that's true, but that's what they were saying. I mean, aside from the confetti, is the, the litter produced at uh, piñata parties much different from your usual park litter? They were saying the reason it was an issue is there was so much of it, and it's very small, it's hard to pick up. And in fact, I was talking to the the office of this commissioner, and he said in another, in an adjoining precinct, the issue over Easter has been what they call cascarones, which are the Easter confetti eggs. Mm. And you buy them by the dozen, and you crack them over people's head as part of the Easter ritual. And he said they put up signs in that precinct saying no, they didn't say no cascarones, which is the Spanish word for it, but they said no Easter egg. Interesting. Confetti eggs is what they say. So park officials are now taking down the signs that read no piñatas allowed. Who knows what what signs come next? But do you think it's too late to undo the damage to the Hispanic community in Houston? Well, the activists I spoke to were were very pleased to hear that once it was brought to the officials' attention, they quickly removed them, and they are still reviewing the policy. You know, piñatas are the kind of thing that you would find widely in Houston. You contrast it with the Northeast where it's hard to find piñatas. I guess there are many places to buy piñatas in Houston and myriad characters the piñatas come in. Oh, absolutely. And, and like I said, it is no longer limited to the Hispanic community. It's, it's a tradition or a practice that's moved to almost mainstream in Houston and the Southwest. James Pinkerton, a reporter with the Houston Chronicle. Thanks for the time. You're very welcome. Metal detectors can be a bit of fun, you know, combing the beaches for treasures in the sand, like maybe a few coins. Well, for today's GeoQuiz, we're looking for the location where two metal detector enthusiasts found more than a few coins. These guys discovered what may be the biggest hoard of Iron Age coins ever found in Western Europe. They were found on an island just off the northern coast of France. But this treasure island is not French. It's one of the Channel Islands and a British crown dependency. But technically, it's not part of the United Kingdom either. Okay, you've got a few minutes to find the answer. Oh yeah, you're getting closer. We know some geotexting game winners who already got it. Liz from Mesa, Arizona, Rose in Honolulu, Hawaii, and Stephen from Santa Clara, California. Congratulations to them. To play our geotexting game next time, just text GEOQUIZ, one word, to 69866. This is PRI.
Thank you for listening to Public Radio International. Free podcasts are made possible with support from individuals like you. Please visit PRI.org and make a gift today to invest in better media. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, how student protesters have helped Chile move past the self-censorship of the past. Now it's legitimate to say this is wrong. I don't want to smell this anymore. I'm not tolerating this anymore. And it was a student movement that opened this door. And later, why Mexican singer Carla Morrison wants young people to vote. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Tomorrow, thousands of students will take to the streets of the Chilean capital, Santiago. They'll demand that Chile's government reform the way the country's education system is funded. It's one of the most privatized in the world. Fewer than half of all Chilean children get a free high school education. Many students and their families are saddled with crippling debt for decades. Chilean student leaders have been pushing for changes for over a year. They've tried strikes, street demonstrations, sit-ins, even a mass kiss fest. The world's Alex Gallivant reports from Santiago on what their impact has been. This was Santiago last year, in the middle of the so-called Chilean winter. Students on college and high school campuses across the country organized strikes and boycotted their classes. And huge marches like this made news around the world. They also made an international star of 24-year-old Camila Vallejo, the then-president of the University of Chile Student Federation. The New York Times called her the world's most glamorous revolutionary. Vallejo remains the biggest star in Chile's student movement, so big that her trademark silver nose ring now crops up in the noses of many of her peers. Still, she doesn't have much to show for last year's protests, except for some reductions in interest rates on student loans. If you look at the bills that the government has sent to Congress, you can see that they're only small cosmetic changes or tweaks to the market-based model. They're not the big structural changes to the education system that we were looking for. The student movement hasn't attained much. That's Marta Lagos, a pollster and political analyst based in Santiago. I asked her why the profile of student leaders like Camila Vallejo remains so high if the Chilean winter didn't deliver results. She says you have to remember Chile's history. September 11, 1973, radio broadcasts announced that General Augusto Pinochet had taken control in Chile. He seized power in a bloody military coup. Nearly two decades of dictatorship followed, with thousands of people executed, tortured, and disappeared. When Pinochet gave up the presidency in 1990, a left-leaning coalition government took power. But something else remained. I think the dictatorship left Chile with... Uh, a high level of self-censorship. There was a sense, Lagos says, that democracy wasn't cemented in Chile, that it might not be safe to say what you really thought. But she says in 2010, when Chileans elected their first right-wing president since Pinochet, that fear of speaking your mind dissipated. Democracy didn't come crashing down. 
With last year's student protests, the fear was finally banished. Now it's legitimate to to say this is wrong. I need this. I don't want to go through this process anymore. I'm not tolerating this anymore. And it was a student movement, the one that opened this door. Now, generational differences probably came into play too. Young Chilean students didn't grow up under Pinochet. They're not cowed by memories of the dictatorship. Still, the students were after education reform, not just a shift in public attitudes. A year later, they face a big question: Now what? Last year, it was like the new thing. The student movement was like, "Oh, look how these guys—they're like going to the streets and they're saying everything's wrong." And now,、uh, we have to project this movement in long term. This is the guy who replaced Camila Vallejo as president of the University of Chile Student Federation. His name is Gabriel Boric. He's a 26-year-old law student, complete with a scraggly beard. One thing is certain, he says: the street protests will continue. They're the source of the students' power. If we don't go to the streets, if we don't protest, we are not going to be listened. But another student leader, Noam Titelman, argues there's only so much marching and striking they can do. Titelman leads the student union at Catholic University in Santiago. He says students have to, you know, study too.、Uh, we're entering a new phase, which is less demonstrations of strength and more.、Uh, Political and social discussion. For example, one of the newest things that is being discussed is a reform to our tax system. Taxation, healthcare, immigration—the list of grievances goes on. Chile student leaders have argued that inequities are everywhere in Chilean society, and that they're all rooted in political atrophy. They say that Chile's constitution and the political system are frozen in time. Still based on what Pinochet bequeathed the country more than twenty years ago, so how does a student-led social movement move from the streets of Santiago to the corridors of power? It, th- that step it's complicated. Complicated, says Gabriel Boric, because the students don't all hold the same views. He himself is a kind of Occupy Wall Street economic reformer. Camila Vallejo is a member of Chile's Communist Party, and Noam Titelman is a work within the system pragmatist. That diversity is a strength, Boric says. The movement can't be dismissed as the product of a single ideology, but it does make the shift to formal politics tricky. It's not like we say, okay, tomorrow the student movement is going to be a political party, but we understand that a social movement is not enough to change reality. Fernando Polson hosts a political call-in show on Chilean radio. He argues that if the students want to remain influential. They can't be tempted by issues beyond their signature topic: the funding of education. Every time they tried to change the focus of the protest from their own problem to some big, huge country problem, it didn't work. But every time they focus on the education, it worked. Indeed, focusing on education can have far-reaching effects, says Noam Titelman. Education is in the basis of this of our society, and changing our education is also changing our society. If that's true, then the student movement doesn't need to turn itself into a political party, even if that were possible. Instead, Titelman says they're preparing for the next batch of elections in Chile, using their hard-won influence to force current politicians to take positions on their demands. It'll be less glamorous work than the high-wattage protests of last year. Maybe it seems a little bit less sexy, but it's a lot more realistic. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant, Santiago, Chile. 
You can see pictures of the Chilean student leaders in Alex's story at theworld.org. Students are at the forefront of a wave of protests in a very different country, Sudan. For the past week, Sudanese students have been taking to the streets in Khartoum and around the country. Today, it was in eastern Sudan near the border with Eritrea. The students are upset by the government's plans to impose painful austerity measures. Sudan's economy has struggled since the secession of oil-rich South Sudan last year. The BBC's James Copnell is on the line with us from Khartoum. James, describe the scene on the streets of Khartoum this evening. Well, as I talk to you, it's relatively calm, uh, certainly where I am. But over the last 10 days or so, there have been a number of demonstrations Uh, They started off with students at the University of Khartoum, spread to other universities, and then last Friday into a number of neighbourhoods throughout Khartoum and Omdurman and several other cities. People essentially left the mosque after prayers and took to the streets, often shouting slogans, calling for freedom or against President Omar el-Bashir. And those demonstrations have consistently been broken up with tear gas. Riot police have used batons. Now, these protests are on a relatively small scale, as in each individual protest is maybe 100 or 200 people. But there are an awful lot of them and they are in a lot of different places. We just heard a story from Chile where students are protesting over cuts to grants. What are the demands of students in Khartoum? Well, of course, it depends who you uh, talk to, but some of the people who first started protesting at the University of Khartoum, female students, one of the things they were unhappy about was the increased cost for their dormitory residences. But I think there's been a shift from a complaint about these austerity measures and the fact that fuel prices have gone up because fuel subsidies have been removed to a more direct challenge to President Bashir and his government. So is this about Sudan's economy or is it also about President Bashir and people's dissatisfaction with him? Yeah, I think probably both. I mean, the economy is in a real mess. South Sudan seceded last July following many years of war. And South Sudan took with it three quarters of the daily oil production. That left Sudan with a huge hole in its budget. And there are measures in place which should, in theory, protect the most vulnerable in society. But many people are concerned. I talked to one person, a man who earns on a good day about $10 a day as a bus driver. Mm. And he has to support 18 people in his extended family since his father died a couple of months ago. But the problem is, is with the uh, rise in prices, now transport has become more expensive. And either people are refusing to pay this new price or they're simply not taking that public transport anymore. I mean, that story of the bus driver, it occurs to me that when, when things get really bad in Sudan, it must be really bad. I mean, when austerity measures are taken, what's life like right now for most people and how much worse could it get in Khartoum and the country? Well, of course, it really depends who you are. Some people have money here and a lot of people have benefited from the oil boom over the last 12, 13 years, but facing up to the prospect of not having so much money now that a lot of that oil money has disappeared. And also a lot of people simply didn't really benefit that much Mm. from the glory days and are now facing real desperate struggles as the economy tightens even further. So, James, it's calm tonight in Khartoum. Do you expect demonstrators will take to the streets again? Where do you think the protests are headed? Activists are working towards two dates, really. The first is this Friday. They're encouraging people to take to the streets, and they're calling it elbow-licking Friday. After a, a well-known phrase that both President Omer Bashir and some of his lieutenants have used in the past to describe 
opposition to their regime that anyone trying to contest President Bashir is licking his own elbow, an elbow licker, essentially someone attempting to do the impossible. So the youth activists have seized upon this label and said, hey, we are elbow lickers. We're going to do the impossible. We're going to kick you out of power. And then Saturday is the 23rd anniversary of President Bashir's coup. And so they're also calling for big demonstrations on that day too. And what will be interesting to see now is whether they're able to achieve those goals in the face of what's a a very strong response from the Sudanese security forces. Definitely something to keep our eyes on. The BBC's James Copnell in Khartoum. Thank you so much. Thank you. For 30 years, potato farmer Reg Mead and his friend Richard Miles have been searching the island they live on for a treasure they just knew was buried there. The two men live on the island of Jersey, just off the northern coast of France. Jersey is a British crown dependency, and it's the answer to our geo-quiz today. Well, it turns out Mead and Miles were right. They've discovered what may be the biggest hoard of Iron Age coins ever found in Western Europe. Some 50,000 coins in all, worth somewhere between 5 and $15 million. Regmead describes how he and his friend found the hoard. We were doing roughly between crops. We would spend uh, five hours or so between each time the potatoes came out or the collies came out. We would uh, uh, find time just to have a hunt and gradually follow through the story that we've been told that there were some coins found in the 1950s that were pulled out of an old tree trunk that smashed and spread all over the field. Well, we found the first ones of those in January of this year. And why this particular spot on the island of Jersey? Had you researched these coins and and zeroed in on where they probably would be? Well, Jersey is very close, as you said, uh, from the French coast. It's 11 miles off of the French coast, and if we go back in history to between 25 and 50 BC, Julius Caesar, the Roman emperor, was on his way up from southern Spain and France, on his way to conquer England, and he had to go past these tribes, so there were quite a few battles, and we think they might well have, during that um, troubled times, brought their money to Jersey and hidden it as quickly as they could for safe keeping so they could return to get some to pay their troops. Mm. Are you surprised it took you 30 years to find these coins? Uh, yeah, I was looking in the wrong part of the field, but that's another story. <laughs> no, I want to hear yeah, that, but what, we, why were you looking in the other part of the field? Well, we were given the impression that the place we should be looking was near an old farm track. In actual fact, that farm track had been ploughed out so thoroughly that we were searching about 200 yards down the hill on the old farm track. And it was only when we looked at some old maps um, at Christmas this year, we suddenly realized we were still some way to go. But as this minute we got that information together, we started searching in January. We found the first uh, few coins. Then my colleague, Richard, said, well, we better just check with the deep seeker. We've got a a specialized machine that looks deeper down. Mm. And we went to the area where the original pot was, and we could hear a signal way down. And three foot down, we've come across this amazing hoard you can now hear about. So these coins, this trove, dates back to the time of Julius Caesar. I mean, these sound like museum pieces. What happens now? Do you have the right to sell them on eBay if you want? Oh, no, no, no. What, we, we are very involved with the historical um, the museum service everything over here. The coins that we found in number weigh nearly a ton. Wow. It took a crane to get them out of the ground, and the experts have said that they appear to be the largest hoard ever found in northern Europe. That's from Jersey to the Black Sea to northern Scotland. 
So at the moment, we've got them out of the ground intact as a mass, and they've now got to be cleaned and taken out one by one. So we're talking about another year's time. Give me a ring and let you know what's going on. We certainly will. So, Reg, let me just get this straight. You found the coins, but you don't own them. You're not entitled to them. I've declared them under the old law of trove, treasure trove, and it states quite clearly, providing we have permission to do what we're doing, that we recorded them and declared them within a reasonable amount of time, that we will get either the whole of the coins back or the full monetary value. We wish you the best of luck, Reg. Thank you very much indeed. Just ahead, a Mexican voter and a Mexican singer who rocks the vote on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Masterpiece, presenting Endeavor. Before his signature Red Jaguar, before he was Inspector Morse, he was the rookie detective constable Endeavor Morse, striving to make a name for himself. Sunday, July 1st at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Mexico's presidential election is this Sunday, and there's a lot hanging in the balance. Will a new president continue with the current militarized drug war strategy? And will a new leader strive for more cooperation with the U.S. on everything from trade to immigration? This week, we've been hearing from voters in Mexico about what they're hoping for on Sunday. Today, we hear from a voter who wants change, but also a return to power for the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI. The PRI ran Mexico under an authoritarian one-party system from 1929 to 2000. Reporter Miles Esti spoke to a Mexico City entrepreneur who supports PRI candidate Enrique Peña Nieto. Danilo Paredes is from La Vista, in the northern part of Mexico City. He runs an internet cafe and is 32 years old. Living close to the border with Mexico State, where Peña Nieto was governor, he says he's seen evidence of his abilities. He believes that Peña Nieto is part of a new generation of young pre-leaders, ready and willing to part with the corruption of the past and move Mexico forward. I'm voting for Enrique Peña Nieto because to me he's a very capable person and he was effective when he was head of Mexico State. Also, I think he has a very good formal presence. He already has the image of a head of state. Paredes rejects the criticism that Peña Nieto is just image and no substance, or that he's a tool in the hands of corrupt party hacks. Look, I think there will always be corruption, regardless of who is in power, the PRI, the PRD, or the PAN. I think corruption is part of Mexican society, and that we, young Mexicans, are trying to change that. And the new PRI, yeah, sure, they're corrupt. And they still have that old pre-base. But I think they can make big economic and social changes. Because society is not going to put up with that level of corruption anymore. So I think they have to change their ways. And I think they can do it. Should the PRI win the presidential vote, Paredes would like to see Peña Nieto take immediate steps to fix some of the country's most pressing problems. For starters, I want an end to the drug war violence and more economic development. I want jobs that pay more because the economy right now in Mexico and at the global level is very fragile. I want Mexico to remain an economically stable country where there isn't so much drug trafficking. 
There will always be violence because you have to fight the cartels. But I want a country where drug trafficking isn't such a big business. So I hope that when Peña Nieto gets to the presidential palace, he says to the narcos and organized crime, you know what? I'm here, and all this is going to change. You're not going to be able to keep up with this impunity in this country. That's what I would want him to do. And finally, Paredes thinks Peña Nieto is the candidate best able to deliver on his promises because his party, the PRI, is strong in Congress. He says Peña Nieto's main opponent, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, is not in the same position. I just don't think López Obrador can turn his proposals into reality. So with him, it would just be another six years of promising change and not achieving anything. I think Peña Nieto, with all the support he has in Congress and the Senate, he will come through with the changes and reforms that the country needs. Danilo Paredes just hopes Peña Nieto can hold his lead in the polls until Election Day. For The World, this is Miles Esty in Mexico City. You can hear all the Mexican voters we've profiled this week and see them at theworld.org. We say in Mexico for our global hit. Reporter Beto Arcos met singer Carla Morrison recently and asked her about everything from Mexican politics to where she's from. Carla Morrison grew up listening to Patsy Cline records in the small border town of Tecate, Baja California, a place known for its beer and its bread. I actually was born right next to the to the most famous factory of good bread over there. And it's nice. It's a nice place, but right now I can't be there because I have too much uh, demand on, on, you know, on singing and traveling and, you know, going throughout the, the country and sometimes the world to, you know, to show my music. Morrison moved to Mexico City six months ago, and she's been selling out concerts across the country. Morrison says she's been overwhelmed by her success and her fans' response to her songs. You know, I'm not trying to be this really well-spoken person and this really intelligent person that only speaks all these great words. You know, I speak like the people in the street, you know? I'm from a little town, you know? I'm from a pueblo. Morrison's ability to connect with Mexico's young audience has to do with her personal approach to making music, says Enrique Blanc, a music critic based in Guadalajara. She symbolizes the opposite to all these um, pop stars built by television emporiums or multinational labels. She's real. Carla Morrison has a, a, an indie attitude that makes her songs so convincing. Morrison has gotten involved in the student movement called Yo Soy 132, participating in a massive rally in Mexico City two weeks ago. The movement was started by university students protesting against the resurgence of the former ruling party, the PRI, and the mainstream media support for the PRI presidential candidate. 
the students view the PRI as the embodiment of the old-style Mexican corruption. As a musician, I have to make sure my, my fans, that which I call them all, you know, lovebirds, that as free as they are to decide on their feelings and on how they feel about life and about love and about a certain person, we are free to decide who is going to lead our country. And, and they can't make us have this leader that we don't want. This week, Carla Morrison will send out a new song to her fans. It's an anthem written by a friend who produced her first album, pop singer Natalia Lafourcade. The song, called Un Derecho de Nacimiento, A Birthright, is meant to encourage Mexican youth to make their voices heard and their votes count in Sunday's presidential election. For the world, I'm Beto Arcos. Ando buscando un pajarito del amor Que solía volar a mi alrededor We have a couple of Carla Morrison's videos at theworld.org. And again, while you're there, check out our series on Mexican voters and what they hope for ahead of the presidential election there on Sunday. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Carnegie Corporation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector, Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.